Hello, this is Logar the Barbarian from Wobblies and Wizards, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, the grieving party heads back to Silmoral, where they learn not only about the bizarre murder at the Church of the Sacred Flame, but that the opportunistic Captain Bellick has used the crime as an excuse to hold the second round of persecution. And this time, the captain will not stop at torture and imprisonment. A public execution is scheduled for today, and tomorrow, and the day after that. They are calling it Three Days of Blood and Justice. In order to understand what has happened to cause all this bad business, we rewind a few hours and follow Brother Gillen into the subcellar of the Church of Sadal. There, Brother Gillen discovers the withered body of Brother Niles and raises the alarm. Returning to the present, it's a few hours before the execution is to begin, and Yellowfly returns from a meeting with Lord Rabbit. He confirms that Bellic's claim of capturing their guildmasters is nonsense. Clearly, it's bait to flush out the real leaders. Still, Bellic is right about one thing. The church will have to respond. If they don't, the public might believe Bellic's lies. Only the guilty would remain silent in the face of such a terrible accusation. With this move, Bellic has put the church in check. Hopefully, it is not checkmate. Chapter 17 Part 1 Day 51 Afternoon Party status Yellowfly 9 of 15 hit points. Cole, 12 of 12. Shawnee, 10 of 13. Catsbane, 6 of 6. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized read languages and magic missile. Cole had been successful in not dwelling upon the loss of his friend too much until now, but something about moving through the streets of Silmoral brought back his grief painfully. Everywhere he looked, the fighter saw his friend. Well, not saw, exactly. Rather, he heard him. Almost as though he were walking beside his late friend, Cole heard Tam commenting on the various people he passed. See him, as the cleric saw a voice. Cole spied a tired-looking man in his sixties, sweeping the stoop of his storefront as he prepared to close early. With the goings-on at Burton Square this afternoon, there would be no more customers today. He's a prisoner as much as anyone in Colfrey's dungeon. He just doesn't know it. Do you think he's free to come and go as he pleases? Not a bit. He's shackled to that little business and spends most of his time in a box made of bricks. When his day is done, he walks home to a second box and stays there until the sun rises before returning here. And this he'll do until the day he dies. 
Cole and his band passed under the Thury Gate unchecked. The guards were standing aside today. Everyone was welcome to pass through and attend the executions. How about those guards? They'll stand in one spot all day and not move an inch more than some filthy thief chained to a wall in a dungeon under Whitestone. I suppose the lucky ones may pace back and forth along the lines of their patrol, but none of them are free to leave. The guards inside the gate are as much restricted as the men they keep out. More so, only they wear a uniform that somehow makes them think they're in control. Cole had once asked Tam if anyone could be free. Tamlet had smiled and said, No, Cole, that's what I've been trying to tell you. You can't. You need to realize that we are all in bondage and accept it. Freedom is an illusion. It doesn't exist. But what you can have, and this is something most folks lack, is wisdom. Cole had argued a little at this, uncomfortable with surrendering to the idea of having no freedom. But Tam finished his friendly sermon with a knockout blow. Look, Cole. Here, his friend had stooped down and picked up a little stone off the street. He threw it down an alley, and it landed a little ways off, bringing up a tiny cloud of dust. Do you suppose that, given how hard I threw that stone and the angle of my arm, and the position of my fingers, and anything else you might care to consider, do you suppose it might have landed anywhere other than that spot? Cole loved Tamlin for treating him with respect. Some folks heard his Nepulic accent and talked down to him. Never Tam. I'm not sure, but what are you getting at? I mean, if I threw the same rock from the same spot with the same force at the same angle, with the wind blowing just as it was then, could it land somewhere else? If everything was repeated exactly the same way, then I'd say no, it would have to land in the same spot. Precisely. Nothing is random. <laughs> dice are random. Well, not Shawnee's dice, but most dice. <laughs> Cole laughed at his own joke and Tam had grinned at him. They are not. And this is the lesson, Cole. They only seem random. Whatever number the dice show is the unavoidable and absolutely certain result of the dice throw's force and angle and the material the table is made of, etc., etc. I know you well enough to be certain. You're about to bring this all back to me. Let me guess, in this scenario, I'm the die for the stone. <laughs> I knew you'd catch on, Tam said. Then who is the dice thrower? In response, Tam had winked and pinched his orphaned key by the chain, pulling it from his shirt and dangling it in front of his chin. When they walked past Burton Square, the questions started coming at Yellowfly once again, but he ignored them and jogged on ahead. By now, a large crowd had amassed at the square, and folks were claiming their spots around a temporary stage constructed from pine lumber. It had been hastily erected just for the events of the three days of blood and justice. Even from this distance, they could hear a strange mix of lamentation and joviality coming from those assembled. The crowd must have contained gawkers and the soon-to-be-bereaved in equal measure. They moved past the square and approached a tall and slim building at the edge of the merchant's district. As they approached from the rear, there was no apparent signage, but they could tell what it was by the sweet smell of apples that greeted their senses as they drew close. When they mounted a stone staircase and reached the landing to the rear door, Yellowfly turned back and gestured in the direction of Burton Square. It was just far enough away that the faces in the crowd were indistinct. He was huffing a little from the effort of climbing the steep steps. There's as many of Bellic's spies down there as there are pickpockets. I don't think we'll make it that easy for them. No, this will be better. He rapped on the door with his knuckles, and after a few moments, it opened. Accompanied by the much stronger smell of apples from within was a young woman standing in the doorway. The maiden looked not unlike Shawnee, 
She had blonde hair, though hers was darker and curled up a bit at the tips. They were about the same size and age, too. For the moon never beams, said Yellowfly. The code had been changed while they were away in Mirpool, Rabbit had said. Without bringing me dreams, replied the young woman. She smiled warmly and continued in a sing-song voice without missing a beat. I think I know your face. What brings you by? Master Yellowfly, I believe. I, begging a favor if it pleases you. Hetty Dunwich, these are my companions, Shawnee, Cole, and Catsbane. The Lord Rabbit told us we might avail ourselves of the use of your hospitality and your rooftop. Oh, replied Hetty, her smile fading. The spectacle. I wish I didn't have to go down there and see it. I've no stomach nor taste for something so... Well, if you'll pardon my saying, something so ghoulish. Well, come on in. Inside, the apple smell was almost cloyingly sweet. The cidery was a neat little operation of just three rooms. There were two up front, an office, and a little bar that seated no more than half a dozen patrons. The space in back, where they were, was much larger. There were a pair of chest-high presses that looked something like stacks of sliced bread. A spigot stuck out from their bottoms and fed into oversized wooden buckets. Against the far wall was a rack of oaken barrels lying on their sides and stacked in a pyramid. Each barrel bore the initials of the business, DCC, for Dunwich Cidery Company. Besides these things were shelves packed with ceramic jugs, a pushwagon loaded with more jugs and cups, and of course crates and crates and crates of shiny red apples. You look busy, commented Yellowfly as he allowed himself to be led to a wooden ladder. Always busy this time of year, as I'm sure you're aware, came the reply. Well, you go on up. Here's the key. She handed Yellowfly a little key and Cole found himself with a sudden lump in his throat. I'll be up and on with some refreshments for you and your good people. Have you eaten? Just a few drinks, thanks, love, said Yellowfly. I don't think we'll have much of an appetite once the uh, proceedings begin. Hmm, of course. Well, I'll be leaving shortly, so if there's anything you need, Ma's up front. We'll give you a hand with your work when it's over and you get back. Thanks, Master Yellowfly. I'd appreciate that. Hello there, stranger. I have a question for you, if I may be so bold. Do you love fantasy? With its heroes of goodness and knights of daring do? Hearty dwarves and mystical elves? Incredible dragons who rule the skies and breathe fire? Maidens so fair they make the gods themselves weep at their beauty? You do? Well, never mind then, off you go. But if you like darkness, disparity, blood and gore, necromancy and demons, then I have a tale for you, my friend. For in the world of Aetheran, there is but a glimmer of light amongst the coming shadow. The eternal darkness is spreading its influence from the world beyond, seeking to wash over the land like a dark tide. All is doomed. But there is still hope. A candle burns within the gloom for those that seek to walk within the light. The Knights of the Argent Order, warriors and wielders of magic, trained solely in the arts of demonic eradication. These brave few will battle to the last in hopes of securing a future for all mankind. Be steadfast. Be stoic. Remain vigilant. 
For here, death awaits all in the world of Aetheran. Available on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, and Spotify. Search Dark Saga Aetheran to subscribe now. Chapter 17 Part 2 Day 51 Afternoon Party Status The party status is unchanged. Ding, ding, ding went the magistrate's bell as the quartet of prisoners lumbered up a short flight of steps to the platform. They had black bags over their heads, and their wrists were bound behind their backs. Three of them were men, one quite elderly. One was a woman of no more than thirty. Her brown hair spilled out from under the lip of the bag that kept her blind. All three shook visibly in their plain linen frocks. Oh yay, oh yay! The magistrate waited for the guards to take their place at the rear of the stage. The headsman, an ape of a man with a barrel chest and arms like hawks of ham, stood nearby. He was shirtless, but wore a pair of black leather bracers covering his thick arm hair. His shoulders and back were similarly her suit. Oh yay! Oh yay! He called again, ringing his bell. Eventually, the crowd hushed. The magistrate cleared his throat. <clears throat> he was almost foppish in appearance, wearing a crushed velvet hat of plum and matching shoes that curled up at the toes. Even his face was inappropriately jovial for the occasion. He smiled frequently. When he spoke, he did so with a practiced stage voice. My friends, true and loyal subjects of the king, these four come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law, they have been judged to die. Be quiet. This was meaningless prologue, but it achieved its purpose. The crowd now grew almost silent in their morbid anticipation of what was to come. Here stand four of the leaders of the blight upon our great city. You know them well through their deeds, if not by their faces. Neither the magistrate nor the crowd seemed to care that their faces were completely obscured by black bags. Yes, they are the same skegs and scoundrels who would call themselves the church, as if to thumb their noses at our most cherished institution. But today, my friends, today we say no more to their villainy. The magistrate lifted his arms. It was as if he were playing the crowd like a musical instrument. They roared in a crescendo of cheering and applause. When he lowered his arms, their hooting and clapping died down once again. Begin! He commanded. To either side of the stage, a contingent of soldiers, twenty to each side, began banging their spear shafts against their shields in unison. Each soldier wore a shining breastplate of polished steel, decorated with a crimson sash. Over this rhythm, the magistrate continued. Executioner, I command, in the name of King Colfrey, that you carry out the punishment that is just and right. A guard brought the first of the prisoners, one of the men, to a wooden block at the front of the stage and pushed him down to his knees, so that he knelt in front of it like a supplicant at an altar. He pulled the man's hood free and the crowd gasped. Many recognized him as a prominent moneylender. Others feigned surprise, simply because they were carried away in the moment. Although the man was gagged, he could still be heard making plaintive vocalizations, but the magistrate had no intention of giving him any last words. At his signal, the guards pressed him down to the block, though he struggled feebly. One of those guards said something to him to make him stop thrashing. Then the headsman hefted his axe. Sunlight struck the newly sharpened edge 
and flashed as though a divine power really did watch over the ceremony. And then... From the rooftop, the companions were spared most of the finer details of the spectacle. Catsbane and Cole were mildly sickened all the same, while Yellowfly and Shawnee watched the proceedings with a kind of grim resignation. None of them had touched the cider Hetty had brought up before she had left for work. When Catsbane was sure he wasn't going to retch, he risked speaking. What... Uh, what do you suppose that soldier said to the fir- uh, to the first one to, to make him stop struggling? Yellowfly raised his chin and stared off into the sky. He answered without turning around. He told the man that if he kept thrashing about, the headsman might have to strike twice. Catsbane swallowed hard. Ah, uh, right. What about the stablemaster Zarin? asked Shawnee. He was the third one to go, right before the woman. Cole didn't want to talk about any stablemaster. His outrage spilled out. Yellowfly, we aren't going to spend the next two days up on this roof watching Bellic's murder spree, are we? That's not much of a plan. We need to do something. Peace, Cole. We will, anon. And by the way, I doubt very much those people were chosen entirely at random. I'm sure Bellic is taking this chance to remove a few little thorns from his side and insert levers in the right places. I'm talking about the people that weren't on the stage in the latter case. Anyway, Cole, if you have any brilliant ideas, I'm all ears. There were a lot of steel breastplates and crimson sashes in that crowd. You want to go up against 40 of Bellic's finest? It'll be more tomorrow, I wager, suggested Shane. Tomorrow's prisoners will be of slightly higher consequence, and they'll save the best deaths till the third day. Bellic will be there for sure. Perhaps even the king. Just wait and see. Today's 40 guards will be 60 tomorrow and 100 on day three. More of the kings there. What can four rebellious skegs do against a wall of steel and iron? Cole asked to nobody in particular. Cole? Catsbane looked suddenly at the fighter with a strange twinkle in his eyes. What is it, my friend? Have you got an idea? Perhaps. Y yes. I think perhaps I do know how we can help. I wonder what Catsbane might be thinking. He has an intelligence score of 15. I sure don't. Does he have a plan that might work? I have no idea. Not yet, anyway. I think I might try something new here. Since the players and I are at an impasse, I'm going to surrender the next part of the story to the dice gods, even more so than usual. Here's what I've got in mind. Catsbane was once, not so long ago really, the apprentice to Carrick, the basilisk of Whitestone Castle. And as the royal mage, Carrick's tower is well-stocked with all manner of equipment and oddities. I bet that if I roll on a few tables of random, strange, and magical items and creatures, that some kind of plan will present itself. I'll make three tables, one for strange stuff, one for magical items, and one for exotic creatures. Surely one of these results, or a combination of results, will spark an idea. As per usual, I won't go through the full details of these lists here. I'll post them to the blog, though, so you can see for yourself what might have happened. And perhaps you'll find a use for these tables in your own games. Now I just need to actually make them. Hang on, this might take a few minutes. Okay, I'm back, and I have the tables ready to go. Let's roll a d6 against each table. The first is for strange stuff. I've got a three. The next roll is for my table of magical items. A two. And finally, my table of fantastic creatures. A one. 
this feels like playing with story dice. Well, anyway, it worked. I already have an idea. You know, I think this is a good time to talk about back editing. As I type these words, I've already played through the execution scene and written the script, but I haven't recorded it yet. Now that I have a better idea of what might happen next, it makes a lot of sense to go back and make a few small edits. One of the advantages of producing my story in the very slow, piecemeal way that I do is that I can go back and, without changing very much at all, sprinkle in a little foreshadowing and strengthen continuity and logic. This isn't something I do very often. Usually I present the story in exactly the same way it's played, but very occasionally I will play scenes out of order or back edit, either by necessity or, in this case, just to make everything fit together better. I want to be clear here that I am not altering anything so as to cheat my own system. What would be the point of that? This move is really just a way for me to enhance the overall drama. You've seen this in action recently when Catsbane heard his mother's voice in the Harpy's song. That detail had to be retrofitted in this way. Okay, enough of this shop talk. Let's get back to the story and see how these roles might impact our PCs. Dramatis Personae, Catsbane, two months ago. Thirteen silver plates, eleven silver bowls, three platinum ingots, one large iron cauldron, one small copper cauldron, four bronze censers, six heavy pieces of quartz cut into dodecahedrons, one amber disc, one onyx slab, 44 glass beakers and flasks, 17 glass tubes, 63 glass vials, one large alembic, one small alembic, one calcifier, one hourglass, one scale, one aludel, four retorts, 14 ceramic cups, one chipped at the rim, and 277 empty glass jars. Phelan wiped down the last item, put it back where it belonged and mopped his brow. He thought, as he did every late afternoon just around this time, that he would be able to recall this list of numbers and items to his dying day. He would have liked to understand the logic in keeping so much equipment clean when the vast majority of it was never used. Those few pieces that were in use were employed only for his experiments. Of course, he couldn't ask. He wouldn't dare such impertinence. And, more to the point, the master was almost always away. He sighed and yawned, having been at his chores since dawn. Carrick probably would have had him up and working earlier than that, but the master forbade him from using so much as a candle for light, and so Phelan was forced to crawl around in the semi-gloom, waiting for the growing sunlight outside to creep in through the little windows. He learned quickly that the order in which he cleaned things was most important. Do the larger and the metal items first. If he were ever to break any of the glassware, there would be hell to pay. He had heard that the former apprentice had broken a retort, and that had been it for her. That was one of the rumors. Another one said she had died from inhaling some toxic vapors. To be honest, rumors were among the many rarities here in Carrick's Tower. There were hardly ever any people about. Days and days would pass between visits from anyone, and when they did happen, they were usually just delivery boys or message runners. At first, Phelan cornered them into conversation. He had never been a social animal, but he found himself starved for human interaction. But these working boys had schedules of their own, strict masters of their own, and they squirmed away at the first opportunity, leaving Phelan feeling oddly shamed and repulsive. 
When his master returned from his mysterious work, which was seldom enough, he almost never spoke to Phelan, who would stand straight and still with his head bowed in subservience. Carrick would blow right by his apprentice without so much as a greeting, heading straight for the corkscrew stairs to his study in the tower's uppermost chamber. Phelan set down the last of the jars inside. His cleaning duties were only the first phase of his daily work. The second involved caring for his master's menagerie. There were ten albino rats that were allowed to run free. They ate whatever scraps and leftovers were available. Often they ate chicken feed. That chicken feed was really meant for Carrick's pet cockerel. The cockerel seemed normal except that its feet and beak were coal black, while its coxcomb was an ever-burning flame. It lived in a special hutch made of stone that doubled as an ethanor, and it almost never came out. Carrick had once said that it was important that the bird never mix with any of its own species, though he neglected to say why. Next was a pixie in a jar. This creature was an exquisite beauty. She wore a little gown of spider silk and gossamer, and Phelan might have happily spent all of his free time staring at her, except that she did nothing but weep and weep and weep. She never stopped, even when he put the day's three drops of honey in the hole of her jar's lid. Now he consciously avoided her because the sound of her lamentations frankly made him feel depressed and anxious. After feeding the pixie, Phelan had to take care of a creature called a ferum mendicare that Carrot kept in a special wooden cage. The cage had no nails or screws or brackets. Everything was made from perfectly dovetailed wood. The creature inside was as repulsive as the pixie was beautiful. About the size of a sheep and glossy brown, it resembled an enormous louse. Or perhaps a cockroach was a closer comparison, as its antennae were always flicking here and there, independent of each other, as it searched for its next meal. The thing consumed nothing but metal, and Phelan's job was to be sure it never ate any more or less than one pre-measured cup of iron pellets. He had named it Princess, though he had never dared to share this little send-up with anyone. When all of these creatures, along with others, had been cared for in the unique ways required to each of them, then, finally, Phelan was permitted to conduct his own experiments. Over the years, through a series of successes and failures, surprises and disappointments, Phelan learned what it meant to be a wizard. His intellect expanded to fill the space of his growing awareness. The net he cast upon the waters of reality became wider. His imagination caught fire, fueled by the nascent power growing inside him. But he could never have imagined that one day he would be planning to break into his master's own tower as a thief. Thank you very much for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to lend your support, there are a lot of ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase One Shot in the Dark or the Pendulum World Building Tool, each priced under two bucks, or pick up a copy of Encyclopedia Manticorica for free. These can all be found on DriveThruRPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show in these ways. I'd like to share one of your generous reviews right now. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by Dave the DM. Dave writes, This is, by far, the greatest old-school RPG podcast or audio drama. I'm still listening to Season 1, and it is truly fantastic. The audio quality is top-notch, and the episodes are of a very manageable length, rarely over a half hour. I truly can't recommend this podcast highly enough. Wow, thanks so very much, Dave the DM. I think I might have been blushing a little when I read that one into the mic. That is very high praise, and I'm so thrilled that you're enjoying the show. It really means a lot to me that folks are into this thing that I make, and I'm very grateful for your review. I also owe a debt of gratitude to my excellent cast of voice actors. 
This episode features Hetty Dunwich of the Dunwich Cidery Company, being played by newcomer Dot from Resting Glitch Face and Gaming with Gage and Friends. Another new addition to the cast and playing the role of the magistrate is Peter from the System Switch podcast. System Switch is available everywhere that you find podcasts. It has short season runs and it changes game systems every time. Finally, Kyle Allen returns in his usual role of Catsbane. Don't forget to check out Kyle Allen's music on SoundCloud. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like maps, musings, crafts, and show notes. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. In a world where magic is rare, those with talents are hard to We will all burn. There are doors to a place where the supernatural is common and nightmares are reality. It's probably still in there. Please. And set the cosmos on a path where that may be no coming. You will all burn. Tuesdays, noon, Eastern Standard Time. Slaythestars.com. Persomnia ad astra. <laughs>